conversation inside the music. Conversations inside the music, where we discuss the topics you think about when you're chilling with your fuzzy slippers and your onesie. Yeah. Welcome to Conversations Inside the Music with Carol Riddick. What's the deal? Yours truly, the magnificent DJ Jazzy Jeff. Hi, this is Jill Scott, aka Jilly de Philadelphia. Hey, this is Gerald Beasley. Conversations inside the music. With my dear friend, the amazing Carol Riddick. So get ready to join in on the conversation and chill with us on another edition of Conversations Inside the Music with Carol Riddick. With Carol Riddick. Well, hello and welcome to today's edition of Conversations Inside the Music. I'm your host, Carol Riddick. Our guest is a native Philadelphian who is widely known as a record producer, a DJ, an actor, comedian, songwriter, and as the other half of the Grammy Award record-setting duo, DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince. He travels across the globe, making us move like we didn't know we could, and he's a pioneer in every right. He even finds time to share some feel-good vibes on Saturdays when he live streams The Magnificent House Party on Twitch, IG Live, and Facebook. Family, welcome to today's conversation with none other than the magnificent DJ Jazzy Jeff. <laughs> hey, Jeff. I want to know, okay, now, although we're all eternally grateful that you are well now, but you gave us a freaking tremendous scare, okay, when you announced that you had been diagnosed with COVID-19. Let me tell you, I read that you gave Lynette all the credit, and we are grateful for Lynette for saving you. But please tell us what happened. <laughs> Listen, um, so I was doing my typical tour. Like, first of all, I want to go back to, I left the day after Christmas to go on a six-week tour. So we left, you know, it's 2020. We went to New Zealand, had some amazing shows. It was the middle of the summer. I'm overlooking the ocean. You know, we, I played on New Year's Eve at two o'clock in the afternoon. So we came back, had a beautiful house. You know, we bought a, got a bunch of food cooked. It, it was about 10 of us too, because Lynette came over, my son Amir came over, Nicole came over. So we were just like, listen, we're gonna celebrate. I was in New Zealand for about 10 days. And then everybody went home and we've continued on with the tour, going all through Australia, Asia. So, I mean, I was over there and I knew what was going on, you know, but I, what, I, what I like to do is to get a little bit more intel from the people that are on the ground. Cause I know how the news media is. So when we get like, my last two shows was in Hong Kong and it was in Jakarta and in Indonesia. And then I had to fly to Canada. So when we got to Hong Kong and my man met us at the airport, my first thing was, listen, what's going on? And he's like, um, it's, trust me, we've dealt with SARS. We kind of understand. And I've been over there. I know they always wear masks just in general, but he was just like, it's like 3,000 miles away. It's not near here. You know, everybody takes the precautions. We've gone through this before. So I'm like, okay, I got it from a local. We were there for two days. When we left and got to the airport, it was really different. It almost seemed like the airport was bubble wrapped in plastic. So I was kind of like, okay, this isn't how we came in. 
So we got to a point that we, we got out, flew to Indonesia. By the time we landed and I walked into the hotel and cut on CNN, they had shut the Hong Kong airport down. But we just made it out. So I was like, okay, something is a little crazy here. So we finished the tour, flew to Canada. I was like, the day I landed in Canada was the day that Kobe Bryant died. So it was just like, I was a mess. I was happy to be at least on my way back home. Stayed in Canada for about three, four days. I came home, you know, and you started hearing the rumblings of that, you know, this, you know, this could happen. This could be like this. So I remember telling Lynette, I said, we should go to the store and stock up. And she's like, it's not that bad right now. So I let it go. About another day went by, hearing more stuff. I said, we really should go to the store. I said, I'm not worried about everybody else. I said, but you know how it is on the East Coast. As soon as they say snow, everybody buys all of the suit because they think it's the end of the world. It isn't about us. It's about them. I don't want to be caught behind the eight ball. Good point. We get in the car. We do the three-store run. Go to Costco's, go to BJ's, go to the supermarket. By the time we got to the third store, the NBA had shut down. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson came down with COVID-19, and we were looking at each other like, yo, you know tomorrow's going to be pandemonium. I'm so glad we did this. And I looked at her, and I said, I don't feel good. And she said, what's wrong? And I said, I just a little achy like I'm coming down with something. When I tell you, never in a million years did I put two and two together. Get home, take some leave. Carl, I don't remember the next 12 days. It, it hit, my temperature went up, I lost my sense of taste, I lost my sense of smell. Now understand, I still didn't, still not putting two and two together. I'm thinking like, okay, you know, I'm sick and, and, and something's not right. I realized that I would doze off to sleep and I would wake up thinking that I slept a whole night and I would look up and I'd only been asleep for six minutes. And then I woke up and looked over and Lynette was staring at me. And I kind of got mad, like, what you looking at me like that? And she said, listen, I know how you breathe. I know how you sleep. And that's not it. Something's not right. She took my temperature. It was 104. She said, nope. And we got in the car. I don't even remember. I was so delayed, like I was hallucinating because I didn't realize when I got, to, you know, and got to the hospital, this is, you know, pre, went, pre everything falling apart and had to do all of the paperwork on the phone in the car. And a doctor with a hazmat suit came outside. They took me in the back. They gave me a flu test. They didn't give me a COVID test because they weren't giving a COVID test yet. And the doctor walked out, came back in, and she said, I want to take a chest x-ray. And she came back in and she said, listen, you got pneumonia in both your lungs. This is extremely dangerous. She said, we're going to prescribe some very high antibiotics. If you feel one ounce worse, you need to drive directly to the emergency room. And I couldn't even comprehend that because I was just so out of it. And got in the car, got my medicine, and came home. And when I tell you, I think a good five, six days out of my life, I don't know what happened. 
That is insane. And it was wild because Lynette and I ended up doing this interview with Essence, you know, about black love. And this was the first time that she told her side. I didn't realize she called everybody close to me. Cause she was like, listen, there was death in Jeff's eyes. Wow. She was like, I, I didn't know. I did not talk to anyone for about two weeks. I didn't text. I didn't pick up my phone. I didn't smile. She said it was just a blank look on my face. Uh, I didn't eat for at least seven days. What? She started doing investigation work and realized that pneumonia is a symptom of COVID. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, yo, where did I get this? Well, I know I did a show in Idaho. And I came home, I flew through Salt Lake City, did I get it on a plane? And it wasn't until maybe about 12 days I started coming out of it and I ate something. And she said, that was the first time that I saw light in your eyes. Wow. Um, and she got a call from a journalist in the New York Times and was like, listen, I'm calling. And see, no one knew I was sick because I didn't say I was sick until afterwards. And she was like, um, I'm trying to find out if Jeff is okay because he did a show in Ketchum, Idaho, and it was a bunch of the Black Steers Association there, and 60% of them came down with COVID. And a bunch of them died. A bunch of the people in the club that Jeff played at died. A bunch of people at the hotel he stayed at died. And I'm trying to find out if he's okay. He never knew I was sick. So that was how I found out where I got it. Oh my Lord. Because it became a really big thing that the town of Ketchum almost tried to blame the black skiers oh. for the COVID. Yes. And they're like, no, we got that hit. Oh yeah. Listen, it's New York times. It was all over the place that, the, the mayor had to apologize to the black skiers. And, and, it, was, and, and it was crazy because I was talking to Charlie, you know, because a lot of people after the fact were just like, yo, I, you know, explain to me what happened, you know, just like this. I was talking to Charlie and Charlie said, Jeff, you text me and said, I'm scared. And I don't remember doing that. And Charlie said, I, like, I got upset. Because, you know, for that to come from you, first of all, no one heard anything from you. You know, your wife called me and told me that you were, that, you know, listen, he's really sick. I just want to let people know. And you text me and said, I'm scared. And I don't like, I don't remember none of that. None of it. Um, but a bunch of people passed away. I gave it to Lynette. I gave it to my mother-in-law. My mother-in-law got really sick. I'm pretty sure the kids... All got it. Right. It was bad. I should have asked Lynette to hear from her as well, because, you know, just as you were saying, just her watching you, just her seeing you. And I know what that feels like to care for a loved one and not be able to do anything. You're, you heard stories about what was going on. So I missed the shutdown. I missed the, you know, everything. So after about two weeks, I was like, listen, I, I want to go out. So we the car and as we're driving she starts saying yeah see I got a regimen like you gotta spray the cart down 
and then you hold it down and you put the gloves on and you got to put your mask on and all the rest of this and then you get your stuff and they might not be this and then when we get back we got to take it out put it in the garage wipe everything down so it says i said turn the car around i did not realize how shook up i was i said turn the car around i'm not ready for this like tears started forming in my eyes and she was like you're gonna be okay but i was freaked out like i am visibly shaken right now that I'm like, I have no idea when the next time I'm going to go out to do anything other than go to the store. When I texted you and you responded, do not play with this. Hear me when I say, do not play with this. You scared the crap out of me. I, I am definitely blessed. Um, and I feel like it's my duty and calling to make people understand that this is serious. So listen, I want to talk about some other things too. Now, I've known you for years, but I've read that you first became interested in being a DJ at the age of 10. I would like to know, how did that interest transition into you becoming a professional DJ? Um, living in West Philly and I'm having block parties. Like people who live in Philly that have ever experienced block parties or things like that, um, I was too young to go to house parties, but when you would go watch these DJs put these giant speakers up and play music, it was really almost like a Pod Piper thing. Like I've never, you know, some of these guys, I've never seen them play the music. You only heard the music and you only saw the reaction that the music gave people. And I think I was more intrigued by that like wow like you can throw this record on and it makes people react like this and then you can throw this record on it makes people like it was just joy you know and it was joy from me being 10 to watching a 60 year old neighbor enjoy it and it was just something about that and just you know i grew up with music in the house so and and i, I laughed because the generation before me, which is my brother, played in bands. I came up in a generation that everybody DJed or rapped, and the generation right after me played in bands. That was Vidal and Dre. So I looked at it like I was in the middle of this. No one wanted to play the bass or the drums when I was coming up. Everybody wanted to play records. You wanted to be, and this was pre-hip-hop too, So, but it was just, you know, being at the beginning of that and watching the block parties and the house parties and having older DJs on my street that I would carry their records and, you know, I would ask, could I put a record on while they went to the bathroom? You know, you start doing that until you just kind of get to the point of I inherited some records and some equipment. And now I'm doing the girl at the end of the streets, her party. And then somebody two blocks over is like, can you do my party? And you, you know, you getting $20 and you got some people helping you. You just feel kind of important, you know, but that just kind of carried on. You know, you go from one block to two blocks to a section of West Philly to all of West Philly to I go, you know, I go to South Philly and I play with somebody. Now people in South Philly know you because, you know, there's no social media, anything like that. So the only way people get to know you is face to face. You were making twenty dollars at a party, then you really were. You were you were you were really doing something. You <laughs> listen, listen. I, 
lot of times I didn't get the twenty dollars, but just the fact that they said they were gonna pay me the twenty dollars. Right. Right. You know, nobody does well. You know that at the end of the night, yeah. You know, we ain't really do too well at the door. Right. Here's dollars. You know, listen, I'm cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's the truth. Nobody nobody does well, even though the place is packed and everything nobody. is nobody, nobody does well. But I got you. That's what <laughs> yeah, exactly. you. <laughs> one thing people have asked me in the past, do you know how Jeff and Will met? At, a, at the funny thing, at a house party. I I I had I had a rapper that went with me named Ice. And I got a last minute call. Somebody wants you to do a house party on 59th and Woodcrest in Winfield. And I was like, okay, like this was like today. And I, and I need to be there at nine o'clock. And I picked up the phone, cause you can't text, you can't call, you can't. I picked up the phone and called Ice and he wasn't in the house. And it was kind of like, okay, all right, I'm just going to do it. I jumped in my friend's car, took my speakers, my equipment, and we rode. And when I went to go set up in the basement, Will came down the steps. Wow. And I knew of him, and he knew of me. And the first thing that he said was, where's Ice? And I was like, I, I couldn't get him on the phone. And he was like, hey, you mind if I rock? And I was like, no. And, we, <laughs> you know, we played, and it was so great. I was like, hey, I'm doing... The win ballroom tomorrow, what you doing? He's like, nothing. All right, well, come on. And it just went, you know, I felt I felt bad because it was about maybe a two-week period that Will and Ice were together. Okay. But Will was so much better than Ice that it just kind of became a thing of, you know, this is what we're doing. And it was it was really nonstop. That was that was in Will's senior year. Wow. He was on his way to MIT. We did every, we did every prom and after prom. We did every graduation party, and you know Dana Goodman, of the Goodman brothers, was like, "Hey, you know he he lived in Will's neighborhood. Will and I did a demo on a four track of Girls Ain't Nothing But Trouble. Will played it for Dana. Dana came to my house um, and sat with me, my mom, and it was funny. It was really funny because." You know, Dana was a street dude. And Dana came to my house to talk about, hey, I want to sign, you know, Jeff and Will. And he walked on a porch and my next door neighbor looked at him and was like, Pa? <laughs> and he looked at him and said, Hawk. So first of all, I'm like, who the hell is Pa and Hawk? <laughs> that's, that's my old head key. And he was like, no, like they dapped each other up. And it was wild because he said, um, what you doing here? And he's like, oh man, you know, I want to sign the young boy, Jeff and Will. And my neighbor's facial expression changed. And he looked at him and he said, Pa, that's Jimmy Towns' little brother. Don't F with him. <laughs> and he looked and it was like, that was it. And, you know, I didn't realize that they had history and he knew, you know, because this was the generation before us. But, you know, we did we did the record. I just did a record because I was kind of like, you know what? One day I'll be able to show my kids like, hey, I had a record. Right. Didn't think anything of it. And I'll never forget driving down 60th and Market Street. And it came on WDAS. And you saw the people in the car in front of you dancing. And it was like, yo, this is cool. Two weeks later, we were in London. 
And it was like, it was really one of those things that I'm in LA and it's kind of like, because I'm, and quietly, 36 years later, I'm still waiting for the shoe to fall. <laughs> like, I'm still waiting, like, you know what? Like this, and it just, it was thing after thing after thing. Like, yo, we in LA, we in such and such. We on Soul Train, we on, like, yo, now we got an album deal. Now we in the studio, we in London doing an album. And it was non, it's been nonstop ever since. Let me ask you this. If you could just sum up three people or think of three people that have been the most influential to you, who would you say those three people are? Absolutely. Kenny Gamble's number one. The crazy thing, Kenny Gamble may be number one, two, and three. Kenny Gamble's mom grew up around the corner from us. Um, very early on, Kenny reached out to me and I went and I sat down and we had a conversation and realized just how much we had in common. And he has been a big brother to me ever since. That um, some of the most profound advice that I've ever gotten, I've gotten from him. I called him one time, you know, really discouraged and upset. And I went and picked him up and we came back to my house and I just went on this rant of, you know, I don't really like the music business. It's not fair, you know, you know, how the creative differences and this and this and just all of the stress. And it was funny because halfway through my rant, I looked at him and the facial expression he had wasn't the one I wanted. I really wanted comfort and a hug and he was scowling at me. And I was just like, okay. And he stopped me and said, you know what all of this is called? And I said, what? And he said, success. And then I looked at him and he said, who the F told you success was going to be easy? And I never forgot that. I, like that was the day that I was kind of like, I am no longer complaining for the sake of me. Like I've realized like, yo, people who want to be successful never understand what it actually success is a destination that you've never gone to mm -hmm. but yet and still you tell yourself it's green and the skies are blue and it's this and when you see what it is and you're discouraged you actually don't have a right to be discouraged at it mm -hmm. you can only be discouraged at yourself because you went down the path without knowing what was down there and but I have always gotten those lessons. Um, I think one of the one of the one of the biggest joys I had was when I started um, orchestrating the whole playlist thing, um, and I went to visit him last year, um, and I hadn't seen him. You know, we usually have sit down once a year. I hadn't seen him for about five years, and I went to go see him, and we sat down. And I showed him the video of it and the joy in his eyes because it was almost like I'm making my big brother proud because I'm trying to do something that I felt you did for me, for other people. Um, and I said, I wanted him to be the keynote. We always have a keynote the first day mm -hmm. that we don't tell anybody. Um, and he was so excited and it, it like, Standing around when he walked in, like he walked in 
and you know walk, walked through the pool where everybody was just kind of congregating and to watch everybody's face when he walked was like Moses walked through like cuz no like i said no one knew and it was just like oh my god and him sitting down having conversations with everybody and the people that were in the room and you know taking questions and he starts his answer off well when we when we did the soul train song and everybody just hold up we got to stop right there don't go no farther i need everybody just to kind of soak that in that when we did the theme for soul train it was just you know, like he's always you know he was one of the first people to call check up on me when i was sick Mm. Um, I have always had that kind of relationship and I don't know if I can, you know, like I, I got to give credit to my older brothers because they allowed me to use their stereo way before I was supposed to, like, it was almost more of a, I'm going to teach you how to handle a record. I'm going to teach you how to pull it out. I'm going to teach you how to handle this equipment. Mm -hmm. Um, and them entrusting me. You know, I was 10 years old making tapes. Like I was make, oh man, like the cassette deck. And it, it, he had a proper stereo, you know, with a turntable and a receiver and a cassette. But I was making Chick Korea tapes what? and Herbie tape. Cause I think about it, at 10 years old, I don't have my own music. I only got their music. So it's like my brothers, my sisters were Stevie Wonder, Marvin Gaye, but my brothers were Maha Vishnu Orchestra, Chick Korea. Herbie Hancock, yeah, Manhattan fans. So I'm not realizing why I'm loving this music. I just know it makes me feel warm and tingly. <laughs> I'm making tapes. I'm 10 years old with a little boom box and playing my Manhattan transfer tape. <laughs> but, so I, gotta, I definitely got to give that credit to them. But I think um, overall, Gamble's demeanor, his humility was definitely something that I really appreciated. It was really more, he was not his accomplishments. So many people, so many people are their accomplishments. And, Gam and Gamble wasn't that, but it's like, it, it's really funny to talk to somebody once a year and every time you talk to them, they give you a nugget that you just put in a chest that lasts you the rest of your life. That applies to not just music, it applies to life. Like I didn't get, it wasn't so much about the music nuggets, it was the life nuggets that he gave. I definitely agree with you wholeheartedly. Yeah, Mr. Gamble is, I don't even know if there's an adjective yeah. to describe him. So since we've been in the midst of madness, I'm gonna transition into something else. What have you and Lynette discovered as a new skill? Oh man, well, one of the things that I can tell you is we are, and have fast become television producers. Really? Just listen, because streaming, you know, once, you know, I'm, I'm always forward thinking. Once all of this shut down and I got sick, I started to realize this is our new life. Mm -hmm. Until otherwise, this is what it is. So I knew from the first time that I streamed, this is a way that you can kind of give people musical joy and this was going to become a thing. Mm -hmm. What I love, we think, we think alike. So while I'm understanding that, 
she's on Amazon ordering lights. Like she's like, no, we need to light this up. You need to dress this up. You need to do this. You know, she was the one that I didn't realize how important shouting people out in a stream is. Like that's something people really want. I didn't know that. So she, she's the one that's writing on the board mm-hmm. and she's showing me like, shout out such and such, shout out, you know, but I think there's a side of that that we love it mm-hmm. because it's, it's, it's you're doing it. You know, doing- I can agree with that. I agree wholeheartedly with that. But it's, it's so important that the two of you have each other to complete that because you're absolutely right. You know, being the creative in a whole nother aspect, you're the one you're, you're doing the lives and you're, you're making it happen. And you need that other component to remind you, well, don't forget about this. Don't forget about that. Or you, you got to do this. Yeah. You know, you need that because you, there's just so much, there's so, so it, much. It, yeah. It, it does entail so much, but I, I, you know what? I want to go back for a second. How did you come up with Vinyl Destination? Vinyl Destination really came from when, when we first started doing these global tours, I took a bunch of my friends. Trying to explain to somebody that I played for 75,000 people on a beach in Singapore, it goes over somebody's So it's kind of like, you know what? Wait, Let wait. me take Joe. Let Jeff, me take you, you said and it was like somebody's supposed like, to, like, who has that experience? I understand. I'm excited too. So it's kind of like when you come home and try to share this experience, oh, man, you don't understand. It was 100,000 people on the beach and I played, and people are kind of looking at you like, and it's like, no, you, no, nah, man. Okay. So I started taking some of my friends, you know, I took my, you know, Joe and Joe videotaped and you start looking at the footage afterwards. And what happened was we were in Vegas and this was when skills was with me and skills was shooting yes. a music video. And he had this guy shoot the video and we, we, we shot, he shot it on Saturday. And Monday, he sent Skills a rough cut. And I remember saying, wait a minute, every video I've ever shot, I didn't get a rough cut for a month. And you got it in two days? I was like, oh, this, and it was amazing. And I remember I said, ask him if he would be down on going on the road. Wow. And he went on, a, He, you know, like, listen, I just want you to take, you know, take video and document you know, the rope and he took it and he put together a recap of the tour. And I remember showing it to people and everybody's mouth was open because the way he did it is he lined up every city we went to. Ah. So you know, get somebody and it's kind of like, okay, you know, I'm here and then I'm here and then you're here. And then you start watching people's face just kind of be like, well, damn, like, I didn't, you know, I didn't know people dance in Bali <laughs> like that. I didn't know they did, you know, but, it, and it became a thing of, he's the one that came to me and was like, listen, we should kind of do somewhat of an internet show um, and came up with the name Vinyl Destination that it was really just about the travels and not, not, not just the music. Mm-hmm. You know, anybody that knows me knows my dietary palate is this big. <laughs> I nah, like when we talking about food, I'm not rolling the dice on food. I roll the dice on some shoes, but I'm not rolling the dice on no food. I know what I like. 
I want to eat what I like. So, but he was like, we need to show your food struggles around the globe because there's some places that, you know, like you put a shrimp on my plate and the shrimp got a head and he's looking at me and I'm like, wait a minute, wait, wait a minute, man. What happened to Sid Booker's? I'm just, a, I want to get it. It was, it was really about all of the aspects. It's kind of like, it was the travel channel because we're traveling to places. It was the fashion channel because you're buying clothes that you can't get in other places. Right. So it was MTV because it was really about the music. You know, um, and we did it. We did it for, I think we did. Wait, this has been around since like 2013, right? Like something like that? Yeah, it's probably about seven, eight, eight years. Yeah. Um, that, you know, it just, it just became a thing. And you didn't realize it until, until you go to Belgium and walk in sound check and the promoter's like, are we going to be on Vinyl Destination? That's so hot. The other honest part of that is that you were on the forefront. With that being said, and you've talked, you've named like a few different people, but there's one question that um, I like to ask. Is there someone on your radar of whom you feel we should be aware? Oh my God. It's, 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 it's almost too many people to name. I have to agree with you. There are so many people from which to choose. The rabbit hole is deep. It is. So I'm going to take it from you that you can't identify not one person. You can't even identify 10 people because there are so many people out here who are bringing all kinds of heat and fire. So I get that. You know, we can all appreciate that. Okay, this is our last question. Because we can talk. There's so much to talk about. <laughs> You mentioned briefly um, facing challenges in the industry and being able to share, you know, with, with other creatives with whom you've worked. What are some of the challenges that you face, both personal and professional? What would you say have been the biggest challenges that you've you faced and, and hopefully have overcome? Oof. Um, well, in a nutshell, it was coming to grips with Santa Claus is not free. Mm. We have a preconceived notion, like I said before, in our mind of how things are supposed to go. And nothing has gone the way that I wanted or thought it would go. That's not to say that I'm not happy, mm -hmm. <clears throat> excuse me, or grateful, but it kind of got me to a point of like, Jeff, get the eraser out. And you got to erase in your brain everything that you thought this was. Like, I think realizing, being such a lover of music and realizing that the music industry is nothing about music was a heartbreak. My biggest heartbreaks in my life have come from the music industry. Realizing, like, I, I looked at it, like, I sat in every seat. I sat as an artist. I sat as a producer, I sat as a production company owner, mm -hmm. I sat as a label owner, and I realized that there was a very slim difference between every seat I sat in because none of the seats were ownership seats. Mm. It's like you gave me five cents as an artist, you gave me three cents as a producer, you gave me 10 cents as a production company to give five cents to an artist mm -hmm. and three cents to a producer, and you gave me 12 cents as a label. And I'm like, so who's splitting the dollars? How about that? Like, under, understanding, you know, all of that. Having success with Jill's album and 
getting a world, we got a royalty accountant. I found this royalty accountant, his name was Bruce Kobrenner. He used to work for A&M Records. And he was the royalty accountant that what he does is he counts up the royalties to let you know exactly how much somebody's supposed to pay. And we brought him in and it was the wildest thing to listen to this man say, so they take 12% out for a plastic tax. And I said, a plastic tax? And he said, yeah, eight tracks. I know they don't make eight tracks anymore, but it's still in the deal. When he started going through what you were paying, I didn't hear because I realized that very few of us in the music industry know that. So there's this wealth of knowledge on the other side of the fence that until you can get to someone that will express that or someone that will tell you, and it's never going to be the person that you're working with because they don't want you to know. And I realized, I was like, well, damn, this is more, this is worse than the drug game. How would heck listen? Like, you know, and, and you're heartbroken because you really thought it was solely about the music. And it was, it was wild because I've gone through so much that I remember when I said, I, there was a conscious effort when I started really DJing again. I had a very successful production company that I was pulling my hair out, trying to keep afloat. Someone asked me to go on the road and play music. Um, it was crazy because, you know, my good friend Kenny Dope was already doing it. You should come out, you know, go on tour. We were supposed to do a tour. Two weeks before the tour, Kenny fell down the steps and broke his ankle. And I was like, mm -hmm. I'm not going. And the promoter was like, listen, no disrespect to Kenny. They've never seen you. They know you. They've never seen you. Everybody's coming to see you. So don't, you know, I ended up going and it was life changing. I'm, I'm walking in into a club that holds 2,000 people. And I'm asking, who's, who's here tonight? And they're like, you. Because I've never seen that in Philly or in the United States. What do you mean they're here for me? Me? Like, you know, I'm not, like, I'm not going to be performing nothing. I'm just doing And you realize that you're playing music, people are having a good time. And what happened was at the end of the night, the promoter handed me an envelope with $5,000 in it. Wow. So I'm sitting here like, wait. So in the music business, you give me money, and I got to wait until all of this is over, and everything is checked before I get the rest of my money. How about that? I just played and you gave me money tonight and I'm gonna do it again tomorrow and the next day. And it was almost like I'm giving joy to people and I'm getting compensated for it. And it was a crazy balance that I'm like, okay, I got a successful production company in the music industry but this, right this, this is this listen I, I came home and i got a call like two weeks later we loved it want you to come back the second time that i went i lied and told everybody at the studio that i was coming home a week later than i did and i came home and i went to the mall and i went shopping i had a normal life because no one knew i was home 
a week afterwards, the calls at the studio, the speakers are blown, the pipe is leaking, when we get the check from Universal for such and such. It was the same thing. The third time that plane took off, I was like, I'm done. I was like, I'm out. And I made a conscious effort to shut the studio down. I made a conscious effort that I moved and everybody like, I didn't tell anybody, no one knew. It was just kind of like Jeff left. He shut the studio and he left. No one knew that I had already discovered like, oh, I'm good, like this is great. But it really got to a point of like, I just want to play music for people. Mm -hmm. All of the confusion comes with all of these people in the middle of me getting from me making music to the people who enjoy. And me DJing again was a direct line of joy to the people. And I was like, like I, I remember saying, I no longer consider myself in the music business. I just do music. But you know what that brings me back to? It brings me back to that 10-year-old little boy who just wanted to DJ. That's it. It just brought you full circle. That's all it did. And it's funny because people don't realize at their most basic moment is the truest moment. And all this stuff kind of gets in the way. And then you realize like, wow, how did I go from all of this to I'm playing music for people again? Yeah, but you know what I think it is? I think, and especially be, being a creative, you know, we start we start walking in our journey, walking our own path, and then we see all these other little shiny things along the way, and they be, they, they're of interest because, hey, I've never been there before. I've never done that. So they become of interest to us, and we, we, we lose sight yeah. of the path on which we started and of our true calling and our passion, our gift. We lose sight of it. I think that is normal. Mm -hmm. What's Absolutely. very important is that you find your way back home. Absolutely. We know where we came from. We know how we came up. Right. And you know, a lot of the stuff that you're seeing is stuff that will attract anybody. Like, oh, yeah. You know, listen, I never made a ton of money before, I never had the opportunities that I had before, yep, you go and you do it and you realize, yo, this ain't, this ain't the way. And I really just think it's important for you to find your way back that is kind of like, you know what? I do this because I love it. Yeah. I do this. And it was funny because a very defining moment is I did an interview and a journalist said, name three, name three moments in your career that gave you joy. And I was like, oh man, like I remember doing this block party or such and such. And I remember doing stuff like I named three moments and he said, you know, none of those moments had to do with your professional music career. And I realized, I was like, wow, like, there was a period of time at a touch of jazz that I was depressed mm. because I was sitting behind a desk. Like we got to a point that I had a desk. I should never have a desk. I should have a workstation. Right. I shouldn't have a desk. Right. That wasn't me. And I was sitting behind a desk watching someone else make music. And I'm like, you know what? Like, I feel like I'm going down this path. I'm going down this path of finance. I'm not going down this path of music. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you get to a point that, you know, you got employees and you got artists. And I'm going home trying. 
trying to figure out, I need to figure out how I'm getting out of right, this. Right, right. All you wanted you to know? do was DJ, and now you're here. And it's kind of like, I need, I need to cut my losses and just go. Yeah, yeah. And and you know what? I, I Well, I applaud you, for one, for doing so. And I'm, I'm sure so many people would say the same thing, because we're, we're benefiting from you being in your happy, living in your happy, working in your happy. You know, we're all benefiting from it. So... <laughs> So I, I can only say thank you, thank you <laughs> for going back to being that 10 year old little boy that just wanted to be a DJ. <laughs> that oh, well, you know what? I have to say thank you uh, just overall and period because, you know, with regard to my own career, I started out with, you know, you and Will. And People always ask me, always, always, always ask me. And I say that, you know, between you, Will, and Charlie. You know, yes, yes, yes. Basically, you guys, you made me believe who I already knew I was, you know, but you made me come into it just by believing in me yourselves, just, just by having that, that yeah. just by believing in me, you, you know, maybe walk in it myself. You know, it's something about knowing who you are, but not really owning it. Yeah. We were all young too. We were really, really young. It wasn't time yet. I definitely agree with it not being time, but yeah. But thank you, thank you, and thank you for today. And please extend my gratitude to Lynette and tell her I said thank you. You know, next I'll have to get her and have some chit chats. You know, with her. <laughs> thank you. Well, family, that wraps up another edition of Conversations Inside the Music with yours truly, Carol Riddick. Once again, thank you so much for joining the conversations. If you like what you heard, please tell a friend. And be sure to check out prior interviews on our YouTube and Facebook pages or any media stream where you typically listen to your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and be notified when new episodes are available. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at Conversations Inside the Music and on Twitter at Chat and Chill so you too can join the conversations. See you next time on another edition of Conversations Inside the Music with Carol Riddick. Be good to you and to those around you and remember, to whom much is given, much is required. Conversations inside the music with Carol Riddick.